Welcome everybody to Learn With Old. Today we're joined with B.A. Milinar. He's the founder of NLC Health Venture Builder and has the personal aim of advancing health tech and health overall across the globe, not just uh, in the EU or the United States, which I think is going to be our focus for today. And he has 20 years of experience in business development and growth strategies. B.A., welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. And we were we were just talking off the, the record, and we were like comparing the EU to the US. And we're like, what are the what are the differences? And we were uh, having like a bit of a, uh, a discussion on uh, whether it's grit, it's the drive, or the, like the characteristics that separate uh, Americans from the Europeans. And so, for anyone like listening in, like love to hear your comments on what do you think it is. I think we were we were like it was close to grit being the winner, but it does seem like it's a multivariable thing that that separates the Europeans from the Americans. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm not an expert on uh, on uh, on the intercultural differences, uh, but grit definitely was very important. What we just said, discussed, and another thing is that you celebrate winners. You have the drive to uh, create uh, great stuff, and you are celebrated for it if you succeed. I think in Europe it's more uh, level playing field. They're all uh, it's uh, the differences are uh, less expressed in Europe. I think. And also there, appreciated. That's important. Are there things? So you talk to people all over the world. You mentioned off there, like even like Middle East, China, like uh, not China, but that was somewhere right up that you were looking into. But what what is something that the EU is doing right? They think the US should be noticing more. Like as an American, um, are there strategies that the EU is employing that's like, oh, that's really smart. I don't know why the Americans aren't doing it. It's like, is there like the we can say like, oh, the Americans are really great at grit, you know, investing money like almost blindishly into things but so there has to be some level of the europeans doing something right so what, what do they to get right uh, as i said i'm not an expert so I, this is mm -hmm. quite a tricky question uh because there are rather shallow opinions uh, i would have mm. so i really really envy the entrepreneurial life of the americans um and what at any point in this conversation if you find value in it please subscribe it is hugely beneficial and it tells google and everyone out there that this is content worth watching thank you for everyone thus far who has commented liked, subscribed and told their friends what i like in europe is uh, is that the differences are less bigger uh, mm. particularly in northwestern europe which is uh, wealthy um, so sometimes i'm surprised in the states that the difference between poor and rich are so enormous but again that's uh, that's also the success of the states. You're celebrated to be a winner, right? It's uh, so it it has its advantages of uh, as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know one of the big topics you what we wanted to get in today is just like the innovation differences between the U.S. and the EU. And so, yeah. from a cursory thing, I've had a lot of people on from you know those different group groupings. The U.S. in terms of innovation, uh, we just really throw money at the problem. That's that's a and then um, B, we have like that Statue of Liberty effect of like, hey, you're, if you're really smart or, you know, you can come to America, right? And so if you have the money and you have like the best talent, you know, brain draining from other regions to here, um, that seems like to be a, a pretty good catalyst, like set up for innovation to like explode from there. But as someone who's like looking at just like innovation between the two, like what are you noticing as trends? Yeah, I'm not sure if it is uh, what you said, because if you look at mm. the global IP production, uh, then Europe is on par with, uh, with the United mm. States. And uh, I think one of the root causes for that is that Europe is very fragmented and we have different culture, uh, 
uh, cultures or different countries, different languages, different research institutes. Um, so the total production on innovation is uh, is on par. Hmm. Um, and if you take a deeper dive in the health tech uh, big corporates and you look at their innovation pipeline, it's more dominated by European tech than it is by uh, American tech. But there is a difference. Um, so the advantage of Europe is the fact that it is very fragmented and multicultural. Um, and that helps with innovation, right? We just have more opportunities to innovate. But the disadvantage is the fragmentation as well. So if I look at our ventures, if they want to become successful, the first market they look into is the United States. It's a single market. From your perspective, perhaps you look at mm. per state per, per state, but compared to uh, Europe, it's a single market. So innovations from Europe, they go to the United States because you can scale much faster uh, because of the market. And because of the market and the risk appetite, there's much, 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 much more capital. Having said that, I'm not sure if there's m more capital in uh, in the United States than, than there is in Europe, but there's more innovation capital. Mm. Uh, and that's massive. If you look at the private equity houses and the venture capitalists, it's dominated by uh, by the Americans. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I wouldn't have, uh, I would have thought, given America's tenacity for failure, that it would result in like more things coming out the pipeline. But I have heard that there is that difference in terms of like, I think like the Sacklers, when it came to the opioids, they wanted to get Germany to okay it because like Germans had such a standard that it was like yeah. this thing that would get them into the Middle East and other places because it was just like, oh, if, they, if the Germans trust them, then, you know, it's, it's good elsewhere. And that's yeah. kind of the folly of a little bit of the Americans that we allowed a drug to just destroy the Rust Belt um, in that way. So like, I, it's like there's like that win, like the upside downside of like Americans trying things in that way. Um, but I would have, I would assume that because of that, there would have been more IP here, but I guess, it, so it's really interesting that it's more balanced than I would, I originally would have thought. I recently was talking to someone who does agricultural law and they said that the EU is an opportunity because if you, if you can reach the standards for the, the EU structure, like as an American, that's all I think of it as like, you know, the, 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 the meta thing that you can yeah. get into all those different markets and then, uh, then sell your, your products all over the place in there there it sounds like there's not like a i guess as standard of um regulation when it comes to the health tech scene as as like the fact that like people would want germany over this one to like approve their thing versus america which is kind of loose when it comes to regulation um which is just like a parallel i've seen in like agriculture i don't know how it is for health tech i think that fda is quite straight and for mm. for regulations and uh, and in Europe uh, it is quite strict as well. Mm. Um, the the market is just fragmented. So Italy works completely different than, uh, mm. than UK, and that works again differently than uh, Sweden. Uh, so the differences within Europe are 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 quite big, um, but to get approval, it's uh, it's all standardized by one. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting. Huh? What is the uh, the risk appetite of the Americans is just so much bigger. If I compare it to uh, to the Netherlands, and we are small, and I'm I'm from the Netherlands, Amsterdam, 
we're a very small country. Uh, only 17 million people. Uh, from north to south is 300 uh, kilometers, 200 miles. Yeah, it's uh, 100 miles from east to west, so it's very small. We've got 2,000 billion in pension funds. It's massive. We are, so all our pensions are looked after. Uh, no one has to live in poverty. With big uh, a part of uh, money, it's, it's it's massive. But they don't invest in innovation. They don't put any money to venture capitalists. And I think that's uh, different with endowments and uh, and uh, pension fund like the Texas teachers or the Ontario nurses or uh, you name it. They're very cap capital rich, but they invest in VCs and they support innovation. Uh, and that's the culture because you want to move on, you want to live the dream and uh, uh, push society forward, also with money. Yeah. So, so if the what well, what would be like a balanced approach of this institutional investors instead of investing in how they normally are with the pension funds? What would be like a balanced approach? Because I think I think their goal essentially is, and I think the benefit there is in America there have been many funds that have you know tried reaching for the moon a little bit too but too much, and then they like wiped out their returns because of the, the risky inve uh, investments and then like the people who are about to retire have like no money there like it's like a, a tenth of what it should terrible. be yeah so then like what would be i mean maybe this is like too much down to the finance i just ask these questions because i like I, I, I think finance is kind of like a magic like how yeah. people can like move things around but what would be like the appropriate risk appetite to allow them to you know responsibly invest uh how they currently are and then responsibly invest into health tech so because fundamentally if you invest in health tech more innovation means people are going to live longer, healthier, happier lives, which is great too. Like, why get to your pension if you're when you get to the pension stage? You're yeah. like, you have all these problems that can't be dealt with. So, like, there is like a balance to be had there, I think. Yeah, and in the end, it's all about the diversification of your portfolio uh, in all different asset classes. And I think that in any any asset class, you should reserve perhaps one or one and a half percent uh, or two percent to uh, to uh, innovation. Uh, but zero percent, then you don't believe in the future, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Then you don't believe in progress. Um, yeah. So it definitely should not be 10 or 20 percent because that's insane, but uh, no percent uh, should be allocated. Yeah. Is that is it something like that you can go to these pension funds and say, hey, I have made the NLC. I have like this huge network uh, to build this innovation that's changed into the future. Um, is that something that you guys could go straight there? Because I mentioned America, I could just go like talk to like the person who manages it and then, you know, get them to like vote on it and then get me in to using their funds. But then again, yes, that could just be my ignorance. So then how would how would you get them to make that change? Is that something you could go directly to them or is that like legislation that stops them? No, for legislation, they can do it. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that the VC industry, so I think that the VC industry has a problem. If you look at the historical returns of, of the whole market are not, well, they're not really sound. They're not really good. And if you uh -huh. take a deeper dive in the VC market, they live on the uh, management fee, right? Uh, so 2% yeah. management fee. So they always have a small team. And as a consequence, they only will do 10 uh, assets. They will only do 10 investments. But the volatility with innovation is by definition, by default, is massive. Otherwise, it's not an innovation. 
Eh? You cannot, you can think you can always uh, uh, predict the winner, but if it's truly innovative, you can't. So you need more than 10 uh, assets, more than 10 innovation. But you, it's not possible because you only have 2% uh, management fee over 100 million or 200 million, so you have a small team. So that's the problem. And even in Europe, the early stage VC, there are 10 or 20 million. The, the volatility is too high for, uh, for the multi-billion uh, investors. So what we are creating now is a diversified portfolio of 80 to 90 uh, assets where you can follow the winners. Uh, and then you get a diversification. And now they are getting uh, interested. Now, the problem we still have is that we are in the pre-seed seed phase. So we are now working on a 100 million funds. Well, now they they starting to build appetites, uh, but they would even prefer uh, 500 million or a billion funds yeah? because then you have uh, the same amount of work um, uh, for the big pension fund compared to 100 million. Yeah. With the limited diversification of a VC firm, that's uh, that's a massive problem. Mm. In particular, in uh, in Europe, I think the, in the United States they're already more advanced, and, and you are exploring new models like Andreessen Horowitz eh, is exploring a new model. Tiger is exploring a new model uh, to get a, a higher degree of diversification. Yeah, I'm I'm more familiar with when it comes to. VC funds doing a more smaller, even when they are early stage, they do only like maybe 10 to 20 investments. Yeah. And then the the, the fund goes out in like five to 10 years, depending on their, their horizon. So having like seven to 80, it all, I mean, 80 to 90, it almost found, sounds like an index fund in terms of like you're so blended that it'll most likely like average out to being positive. Yeah, but the average is quite good. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and with this, uh, and that's the second assumption. The thesis, investment thesis we have, if you are in really early states, you cannot always predict the winners, but you have to do your homework. But if you do it at scale, you can in, uh, improve your homework in essence. So uh, I've got a team of 80 uh, full-time uh, equivalents and a massive network around it. And we can make, we can assess the risk better than the market because we have a better team. We've got more data, more information. And combined with that, if you have a better information position, uh, you can attract better partners. And like we're building trenches with um, uh, with top-notch hospitals in Europe, but also in the United States now. And because we work with those corporates, we can make better decisions. So uh, that's a flywheel effect we uh, we do in the early states. So it's just not it's not uh, spray and uh, and pray. Mm -hmm. uh, making a better assessment and uh, and broadening your portfolio at the same time. Yeah, if that was the fact, uh, second thesis, are there other theses that NLC is working on proving out? Well, the first one is innovation is needed big time, and yeah. it will be now, tomorrow, and the next uh, decade. In particular, well, I would say in particular in Europe and also in in the United States and let me alone look at uh, in Europe we have a massive a massive a massive, a massive problem with uh, uh, employment we have too little workers right or too few right? mm -hmm. um, so also in the healthcare 
uh, we just cannot find the people anymore because we have an aging population and uh, less young people. So there are basically two options, more uh, immigrants, uh, and there will come more immigrants due to climate uh, change, and, uh, but we need them as well. And the second is um, uh, increase productivity, and that's always done by innovation. So if you don't innovate, we cannot look after our people. So it all starts with that. You have to look at innovation. And secondly, in innovation is the highest impact and the highest return. The money multiples are insane if you have a success, if you are in there very early, right? And we've got some great examples for that. But if you are in the early state, that's the third thesis, you have to do it at scale. Uh, subscale 10 ventures, you cannot build up the network, you cannot build up the uh, information position. Um, and another, in, in, <laughs> that's very conflicting with the worldview of, uh, of uh, VCs. Uh, VCs always say you need uh, the founding team, they need the majority of, uh, uh, of the company. And I absolutely disagree with that uh, investment thesis. Because in health tech, if you have, uh, so it's most of the time complex stuff. So from inception and from, uh, from the lab all the way to the market, there's enough literature that you need four different CEOs. You need four different CEOs. It's just insane if you give the first CEO 50% of the shares. And then you look at the other side of the thesis, what is the biggest failure of startups? is first of all, there's no product market fit or there's a technical problem or whatever. But the second is team, 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 team. Because uh, Peter's principle, everybody will grow to a level of incompetence. And that's in particular in health tech. Because if you're good at clinical trial, it doesn't mean you're good at product development. It doesn't mean you're good at uh, scaling exercise. Um, so there's another very important uh, uh, thesis. Uh, yeah, Lola, I just had to think about your briefing because you said don't hold back. So here you have it. <laughs> yes. This dangerous plea of FECs in uh, Europe. Yeah, so, uh, I'm I'm curious about the equity one in particular. The because I'm familiar more with like the tech side of models where uh, it is more even like the health tech, like BCI type people that I know. Over time, the, the founders do get diluted. That's just the nature of you know the raise. Things change, but the I'm just thinking. You're right. I have heard that and seen that. That like there's new CEOs that take over over time. Like there's very rarely have the same one that goes all the distance. But it does seem that I wouldn't. Maybe I'm like misinterpreting you, but I wouldn't like artificially like reduce the equity in the beginning because then they can. They can like navigate it until there's a dilution where like there's more party in. Then it's more like a collective people uh, like leveling it up at the different stages. So instead of being like the driver force, driving force behind it, they slowly mature to the point where like they're just like like on the board finding the people to like bring it up to the next level versus yeah. like um, uh, maybe the way I took it was where like they were given like like I think the average is like in America, let's say like there's like four founders, like everyone would get like 20%. And so it sounded like maybe they would get like 10% and they just like a larger pool for employees and other further rounds to come along the way. Yeah, so uh, I fully get what you say. Um, we apply 
a little bit different model. So we, we are focused on the tech side. So we look mm-hmm. at the quality of the tech. Does this uh, solve a real problem? And is it a real solution? Is it, uh, does it have a good uh, uh, competitive advantage? It's IP, first mover, knowledge, whatever. Is this yeah. really good? And or it mainly originates from academic research institute and from big corporate, from scientists, from PhDs, professor. And there's, I think, enough evidence as well. There's negative correlation of an inventor becoming a, a successful entrepreneur. And that's most of the time it's not. So we said we are the founders as a company uh, and we embed the uh, technology in our ecosystem. So we will support them all for 10 years or whatever it is needed. So we are the founders and we started with 100%. Then we look at what's needed. So first of all, we need to get uh-huh. the inventor on board, but sometimes the inventor wants to stay with the academic center, right? Uh, and just want to be an advisor. Another time he or she starts working for us. And then we allocate a percentage to the staff and a percentage to the CEO and to the CEO. So it's, it's a co-founder. We said, listen, this is the tech. You have to bring it from A to B. And that's not from the lab to the market. Now you have to run the clinical trials. And uh, if you like it and uh, and you're able, competent, then we then you can continue. But otherwise, we find another CEO. So it's a different uh, model. Yeah, uh, I, I see the difference now. Yeah. And I think it's quite cruel what we do as society. Eh? It's... Uh, because we depend on entrepreneurs for progress. Uh, did you read the book uh, Anti-Fragile? Probably you did. Yeah, uh, it's, I think it's on my shelf behind me somewhere. I loved it. I loved it. Yeah. Uh, but his opening is really nice where he say we should uh, have a statue for entrepreneurs because they are the biggest risk takers and they start an endeavor with the knowledge that they probably will die somewhere. Right? that they will fail, uh, and still they do it. Um, and what I like, okay, th- so we assume as well that most will fail, opportunity to learn, but they will not succeed in it. But if you work together, instead of le- letting the uh, CEO doing it all alone, if you do it with a bigger group, a little bit European model, then you can uh, increase the chance of uh, success or you can reduce uh, the uh, the chance of failure by supporting him or her more. And that's what we're actually seeing with our model. There are less ventures failing uh, and there are no ventures failing for the wrong reason. Hmm. It's interesting. Yeah. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. It's it's interesting. There are good reasons why ventures should fail. eh? I mean, Clinical trial was not good. Okay, uh, uh, stop it. Clear. Uh, or there's a competitor stronger. Stop it. Clear. But uh, the most important reason why venture fails is a second uh, important is team, and that's for mm-hmm. us. It's never a reason. We just replace him or her, and uh, and the tech uh, continues. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Oh, yeah, so I, I I see where the difference is. Nor, uh, in, in the U.S., a lot of places have a model where it's like they're the fun, they have the money, people come to them, they pitch, they get like you know, depending on their stage, like seven to twenty percent of the equity goes to them for the investment round. It's usually a syndicate of investors. It's usually very rarely one investor doing it. 
but then they get like a bladed percentage as it relates to their investment of like I think like uh Y Combinator does like seven percent of of equity, but it's something like a safe, I think. And but like most people when it comes to early stage, they'll probably take somewhere like ten to twenty percent of the company. I think Apple in the seventies got like thirty percent taken for their early stage. And so that has the the founders owning the seventy percent and they manage it from there on. It sounds like you guys are like the driving fo- focus. You have like these theses, you have these ideas that you see find the partners who know how to innovate and make them happen and then you bring them in you kind of give them like everything they need that the staff you know everything to set them up and you say go and then you're kind of like the guiding hand that supports them and kind of encourages them forward yeah. and so what, what what the left hand learns the right hand will know as well at the same time like that's the benefit of it because um, okay. you have like that central team pushing them on it sounds like i'm curious to what extent the like that that, that american eu factor uh, comes into this where it's like the, one of the benefits of having the founders have such a big control is the they have the they have like they have the knowledge that if they screw it up um, it kills everything where in yours it seems like if there was like a, let's say a bad CEO you just come in and you like flick them away like a flea but the wow. like you guys are like a bit of a safety net you know I know you won't want to, you know I'm saying like as like a joke but <laughs> there's there's an element of uh, like a safety net in that like like there's still parents watching, so I wondered to what extent like that comes into the factor of speed. So like Americans like they're they're very fast because they have that like if I'm not fast like someone else is gonna eat my lunch. But then these yeah. guys have like not like the parents are still there, but it does they have like that little bit of like being minded by someone, which is a little different in terms of like being a CEO, being decisive. I got one hundred percent what you say, uh, but back to anti-fragile. Uh, what Talib is saying as well, eh? and uh, I'm just quoting him because, or, uh, as I said before, I like this book. He said, the biggest uh, fragilizer of society is lack of skin in the game. And that's what you mentioned. You need skin in the game if you don't yeah. mitigate your debt eh? or your, your bank or whatever. So they can earn milestone-based equity. They will get some equity and they can earn milestone-based equity. So they probably carry it. But we are not paying them in the beginning. So they better make it. Uh, uh, so I think if we really start paying them a good salaries from the start, then they wouldn't bother. Then, then they are corporate employees, right? But now they are full in the wind. We support them with tender love and care, uh, with connections, with advice, with information, if they want, but they are in the driver's seat. So we have some CEOs, we don't see them, we don't hear them. They are brilliant, they just push it forward. And other CEOs are brilliant as well. They ask anything, they want, can, can you help me with this? Uh, and then we, of course, we also have some incompetent uh, CEOs, but we are, we are not parenting them, not at all. Because they have to succeed, otherwise they, they do not make money and they do not make progress. Yeah. Do they have power of the purse? Like, do they manage their finances and stuff? Yeah. Or is that like you guys? Okay. Because when no, you said like they, oh, go ahead. No, no, they they've got they are the CEO of, uh, yeah. of the company. They are the statutory director, uh, and they just go and uh, and very quick we get other investors in as well. And in the beginning we were always a majority investor, but we dilute uh, fast. What we just have discussed is the reason why, one of the many reasons why corporates cannot innovate. Uh, it's impossible because 
people have not skin in the game. Uh, mm-hmm. Because if they fail, they still have a job. And actually, some people think if I fail, uh, I've got a cross behind my name and I cannot make a career in this corporate, so I probably just push it forward, right? Um, and there's another thesis why corporates cannot innovate. Um, they should not be able. Uh, I'm yeah. really worried if corporate is good in innovation. Because if you are responsible for a value chain of 100 million, 500 million, whatever, you should not play around and pivot in the, uh, in the value chain because it can uh, break down your uh, whole PL, right? Mm-hmm. So I am personally convinced that corporate should truly disruptive innovation should always come from outside. Yeah. And it should not be I, a playground for, uh, for the corporates. Yeah, I think the like if I was in the organizations, the these big corporate corporate corporations, I would um I just allocate a percentage of revenue in my PL for innovation. And I'd basically say like get you can pick two to five people that you want. It's kind of like the Brian, not Brian, um What's the billionaire guy who did aerospace in Britain? Virgin Galactic. Uh, uh, yeah, I know what you mean. Branson. Richard Branson. Branson. Richard Branson. He, uh, whenever he would go to build a new company, he'd basically take the top people, like salespeople, the top person in each of those departments, and say, "All right, you guys will come with me. You now have this responsibility over here, and the people underneath you are going to boost it up." And so, uh, like there was like that energy of innovation where he basically just gave people the money and said run and like had all these different like ways of doing that but that's how i'd want to do it because at a certain point that's kind of boring and you don't you really can't keep the best people with that type of mentality like he's not the best people well i mean that's still i mean it's like one of the largest employers in the world like the aerospace no i think what's very important that he is a top guy and he's an entrepreneur so he dares to say yes and no uh but any other corporate in the world, uh, it just means by a professional manager, which I really respect because for me, I would be a very lousy corporate um, uh, leader. Uh, it's a really tough job what they do, uh, but it's not Richard Branson because he's an entrepreneur. And uh, so I'm not sure if I agree with your, uh, I am sure, I think it's a wrong example. <laughs> yeah. yeah the- I think I, I was just more making the point that I think the Richard Branson model is better for corporates. And if, if not better, but like that's how I would run them if I was in the corporate manager person. I would try to run it more like Richard, where there is that engine of innovation coming from within, because the there's a level like what you're saying, like the most people phase out as the company grows. That like the person who really likes the early stage excitement of building something, when it starts getting to like A and B, like in between A and B, they get bored and they want to leave. But then I, I have like personal friends that say they get like golden handcuffs. Where they're getting paid too well, they bought a house, and they're like they're you know creep stuff, and so it's like how do you keep that person engaged and excited for what they're doing? Usually, what the, the model the model that I enjoy is I say okay, well, when we get to that that stage, you pick the team that you want, and you'll have funding, and you can just work on these exciting projects uh, that will relate to the product. So you basically have like a mini company within that company, uh, even even to the point of like um, disrupting the main sources of revenue potentially. And I think that's how you keep like. Like a little bunting offs of like trying new things. I think Google does that a lot, and it's a model that I think is very powerful. But like once again, I, I see your point that most corporations don't do that. But I think I'm arg- I think I'm like kind of pushing back on the sense that I think there's a lot of benefit to doing it alternatively. Like it doesn't always have to be externally coming in. Is what I'm saying. 
let's have a look at your closer look at your friend eh, who has uh, golden how, how do you call it golden uh, handcuffs handcuffs um I would say, okay, if he's talented, you want to become an entrepreneur within this corporate cool, will you reduce your salary by 80%? Uh, and we want you to invest uh, X amount of my, uh, starting capital. You need to have skin in the game because if you don't have skin in the game, uh, it's playing. And I've seen it with other corporates around me. And before I started NLC eight years ago, I was a strategy consultant. I saw it with a lot of corporates well-paid managers and uh, and certainly they start wear sneakers uh, and uh, being uh, the cool uh, guys because they are innovation of the bank or whatever uh, but they have not skin in the game so they will first thing they will do they will hire a secretary because they're used to a secretary and they will have a corner of oh no we will not take a corner office because i will sit it's it's not on the shoestring it's not on really finding uh, the solution for uh, uh, the problem, not really pivoting. It's just playing. Uh, so I'm, I'm, as, you, as you feel and sense, you can see, I've got a very, very strong op uh, opinion. Mm -hmm. I respect corporate leaders. I, man, they work hard. Uh, they're extremely smart and passionate. But a running a corporate is a different ball game than running a startup. And those two, they are like uh, asking a baseball player to uh, to play snooker. He might be good at snooker because he has feeling with the ball, but he will not play uh, with the game. And well, with innovation can it cannot. And yeah. I still think that uh, Apple and Google, they still buy. And the question is, if they are really good at innovation because they're spending so much money, uh, if they would have invested all their money in VCs um, with a really big portfolio, if the output would not be bigger. I know the answer. <laughs> yeah. yeah the, well, sorry, America, this, we did... uh, sorry for this bulldozing, but this is, I've got a very strong opinion about it. No, it's a, it's a good. You're not bothering me at all. I enjoy uh, disagreeing with people. But my wife says I'm overly aggressive sometimes when it comes to conversations. Where I, I don't mind. Like I know sometimes people are. I once had an argument with someone, but that was much more heated than this. And the next day, the person comes up to me, like a, a person who's watching it. The coach was like, "So, are you are you okay, Lol?" And I was like, "About what?" And I'm just like, just starting my day. Is like, like what's going on? It's like, well, yesterday you had like this big, you know, confrontation with someone. And I was like, we were just. We were just discussing something that we cared about. Like, I don't understand why you think like I would be mad. Uh, so yeah, you're not bothering me. Like, uh, I agree, disagree. I see the point you're making. I don't entirely agree. I think there's like, but I also see that like that's the model that is it, it kind of works. Like, do people do? I couldn't I couldn't find an example where someone in entirely goes in house. Like you're saying, Google doesn't go entirely in house. I, I was just wondering, like, to what percentage are the innovations they come out with products from in house versus out house, out house or external? It probably just for the nature of like how much money they have versus how many people in house is they probably bringing more from the out to in versus like in going out in terms of like making products. And so the it sounds like the best models would be some type of hybrid. I was just saying like in terms of um, like how I'd run the organizations, I always think this way where it's like if I was in charge, how would I think about it? And I would try to find a way to make innovation happen. But I also see that like as someone who's a VC, you're thinking like, you know, if there was more money put into VCs like me, I can invest in like 80, 90 more, you know, at, x 
per VC fund, and there'll be even, even more innovation. And so that's kind of where you're coming from for a minute. And I think it's happening. Eh? If you look at the statistics, um, the, the overall R&D expenditures of, uh, of health, uh, health corporates is uh, declining and M&A budget are uh, increasing. So they are shifting away from R&D towards uh, M&A. Mm. Having said that, if you don't innovate at all internally, uh, you should also for the culture. People should build up grit and resilience and also with innovation and see how difficult it is. And so yeah. it should not go to zero, but I think the overall the percentage should be more towards 90, 80% external and 10, 20% internal. And that's actually happening, eh? it's happening. So it's not uh, it's not that I'm uh, making my point that the corporate see it wrong because most corporate do it like this. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier that there's been some really big impacts from your investment, your investment strategy. And I'm not talking like returns. I think that's, even though that is probably easier and like that's what head, people like write headlines are about, like, you know, innovation that results in like 3 million X or whatever. I, I, I'm more like focused on like how it affects people. And so I'm wondering what has been some of the more significant impacts like on people's health in terms of like something being built innovation wise and how it's helping people. And I feel like the return on that in terms of investment is good too. But I always like for me, it's just like like I get bored of those headlines. I like to hear what like how it affects people. And so with this model like eighty ninety, I'm imagining there's some really cool stuff that you've been able to do like support. Yeah. Well, what is closest to my heart um, is uh, Concord Neonatal. Uh, it's a venture uh, from uh, from the NICU. So there was a professor who was uh, uh, and actually. A medical specialist and they worked on uh, premature babies mm. and they said let's what what is the what is the problem with all the premature babies and it's getting really close to me because my youngest kid is a premature born two months too early so he's very healthy now but we were in distress eh, for a couple of months it's extremely healthy and happy now so it's uh i want to say that as well what happens with all premature babies is that the lungs are not developed and that's causing all different kinds of problems. So too little oxygen to the brain, to the rest of the bodies, uh, it can lead to severe complication uh, and even ultimately uh, death. But also the complication during the first month, like my kid, but can be a couple of years or it can be a lifetime. So this, this doctor has the idea, let's, let's keep the cord longer connected to the mother so the oxygen can flow through the mother to the baby, even if the baby's on the board and just on the lap of the mother. So he invents, he goes to the technical uh, department of the academic hospital and, uh, and those people really like the idea and they start making, manufacturing such a table where they can uh, catch the baby above the mother and keep the cord intact. So it's a prototype and he's testing it and it seems to work for you. So he goes to a big corporate. He said, I developed this. Can we, can you help me? And the corporate says, wow, this is really, this is fantastic. Our patient needed this beautiful. Our hospital needed beautiful. But can you come back if you have the first turnover? Yeah. Because 
we are in, in essence, we are a marketing and sales organization. All the corporates are marketing, sales, and manufacturing. So please come back. Yeah, but I'm a, I'm a doctor. I'm a professor. I'm not a, a businessman. Well, perhaps you have to go to venture capital. So they go to venture capital. And venture capital, they tell them the same story. This is fantastic. This is really great. Such a smart, clever innovation and seems to work. It's beautiful. But what is the business plan? And uh, who's going to be the CEO? So this guy said, yeah, it's not me because I like to help patients and I'm not a businessman. Yeah, well, we cannot help you. We need a plan and we need to invest a minimum of two million and then come back. That's how the world works, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so somebody said, you have to talk to NLC. We talked with him. Uh, he explained what he was making. Personally, I did not believe in it. I thought it was the solution was uh, too simple. Uh, but we don't have a consensus model, right? And we don't have a top-down model. And we had one of our venture partners, he said, he said there's some matching in this. I believe in it. So we did some uh, survey, we interviewed some people, and we started the company. Long story short, it's now in eight different countries uh, sold. It's uh, almost now at 100 hospitals. And then you talk about impact. But if my baby would be born today, my baby girl, she would not be an incubator. And those corporates did not help uh, them with reason. So I don't blame them. I don't blame them. The VC could not help them because the VC was only with a small team. And uh, and uh, we started it. And that's... Uh, so we can talk about, and we've other. Currently, we have 84 ventures as of today. Yesterday, with 83, with 84 uh, ventures. They all have the same story. Some affected hundreds of thousands of people, but it makes it really close. If you could just help a bunch of newborn babies and give them a better start, that's, uh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, I can, I can see more of how your model works. If, you were, if you're a great inventor and you want to see change in the world, or if you're like really good at executing at different stages of a company's life cycle, I could see how your model, um, your VC fund would be a lot of fun. And that like, let's say you're not like an early stage person, you're like a middle, middle stage that so you can take a product, get uh, develop it further and get it to the end, end line. I could see like through through your example just now, I could see like, as a, like if someone is an inventor and they have ideas and they want to help like get the invention to like the MVP stage, but then that's really where like their heart is uh, versus like, converting that person like trying to change them so they can be a leader and keep going they can just you know let someone else take the reins on that and then maybe they go and invade something else so like i see the the power of that model now that i've thought about further and heard like a a direct example uh because earlier i was like i don't know it's kind of odd but like it has to be working for some extent so i'm gonna like keep listening and now i I can see it's like if you're like if you're if you know yourself and you know what you're really really good at and you can fit into your ecosystem i think and i say fun i i think it's like you have an exciting time but like sometimes people work and it's like every day they don't necessarily know if they're contributing Where yeah. like if it with your model they would always be contributing because the they're they're like at the maximal for their output in terms of like building something that actually affects people's lives so like that example is really good for like helping me understand like the power of your model as yeah. well which is kind of a nice bonus nice nice and let's continue on 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 this example eh? and there's also the anti-scale fallacy of um of um uh, I like that as well. So on average, you need four different CEOs mm-hmm. for a tech. 
but that's not always given. So what happened, we assessed this uh, technology. Once again, in the beginning, I did not believe in it. And uh, with through the years, and I'm now the biggest supporter of it. I love it. And that's innovation, right? You don't see it, and then it's happening, and then come believe it. For a fun fact, in the two weeks' time, I will be one day at the NICU, uh, mm-hmm. just seeing how it works in practice, etc. Okay, so we've got this uh, starting point. Then we look in the market. What is a CEO who can help this specific technology to the next level? So we've got uh, four in-house uh, headhunters and we've got a network of uh, network of uh, recruiters. We came across, uh, I can now say, a brilliant uh, CEO. Uh, and she had a lot of experience internationally in uh, Germany and in Asia and uh, in the rest of Europe in the NICU care. So she knows the market really good and she was a product developer. Um, and what we needed was a product development. We did not need a CEO who built a massive team or attract massive capital or whatever. No, we need someone brought that technology, which was in the premature phase, actually, uh, to the next level. So we said, listen, we've got this opportunity. We think it has great impact, but you know better. Do your uh, due diligence. Talk to anybody. Ask our any question. Uh, but we think you are a great candidate. However, we also think that you're good in the first phase and we think we need to shift gears with someone else if it will scale. So she started uh, skin in the game, investing money, in the beginning no salary uh, because she believed in the impact. Uh, she believed in the inventor uh, and she had an intrinsic drive to create progress to, to move it forward. So a couple of years later, uh, we were starting to scale. And then came, of course, the discussion, do we need another? But she developed herself, and that's, and that's what I like of the anti-scale fallacy of, uh, of our reach. She developed herself, and she also knew that she needed another person besides her, which we thought in the beginning we need a new CEO to scale. Uh, and now we organize it in the board and with a commercial person beside So. Yeah, it's uh, I really I really like this example mm-hmm. that someone can develop all the uh, all the life cycle with the tech yeah. with great impact. Yeah. yeah. How how do you know if the CEO is running it and they're running straight and there's a there's like for normal startups there's this I've talked to investors I've talked to startup founders I've been a founder. Um, like I just tell people how it is. So like, like I'm just boring. I'm just myself wherever I go, which is kind of a nice feature for, for people. But um, like there are times where people don't tell the investors exactly what's going on. They like say, oh, it's great or, you know, whatever. They don't tell them like the struggles. So then what's, how do you ensure that you're being kept abreast? And um, like maybe it's like a quarterly thing. You guys all come together like, hey, how's it going? You know, it's need anything type of thing. And there's like a direct tie in that way. Um, the real, like, which is my underlining thought but then how do you know, essentially it's the question, when you're reaching these different phases where like one CEO maybe has to step out or you know needs continual education throughout the process to be ready for it, um, if the CEO is completely running it and there's this inherent problem where some CEOs don't tell their investors how it's going until it's like two minutes before a raise. And they're like, hey, give us more money. 
It's like it's been like two years. You haven't said anything to us. Why would I give you money? Like you have to. It's like come pitch us re- a new again. Versus like a lot of people. Uh, if you just like maintain the relationship, it'll go easier for you. Just there's a piece of advice out there. Maintain the relationship. Don't just treat it like once. You know, like a piggy bank, like for one every two years or something like that. But so how do you yeah. how do you identify those phases and uh, encourage the transparency you need to have to help the company and the IP and your VC fund be successful? Yeah. So first of all, you never know. So it was not your last question, but just before your last question, you asked, how do you know sure? You never know sure, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, there's always a level of trust and uh, expect uh, mutual expectation. But we have a quarterly reports. Uh, yeah. We have uh, every quarter we discussed uh, all, all uh, portfolios with, uh, with the whole team, with, with, with all the venture partners. And there are a lot of interaction with our total AT uh, FTE, like legal is supporting as well, and uh, finance team is helping as well. And so there are different layers, and we get somewhere a weak signal. Um, we will discuss it every quarter. Having said that, yeah, sometimes uh, we are in the dark as well, and we don't get control. It, uh, it happens everywhere, I think. Yeah, but it's about uh, the governance and checks and balances, uh, and that's the advantages of. So there are a lot of VC of two or three or four people. That's the advantages of having a team of uh, eighty, and we're now growing to uh, hopefully two hundred people. That you can set up mechanisms, structure, uh, uh, IT, and processes to get a better grid of without giving away the uh, independency of. Uh, of the ventures, mm-hmm. they have to find their way and they have to pivot because they are in the market. They know what's going on and not we. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, it's interesting sometimes when I'm like, when I think I've done so many interviews, I, there's a part of my head that thinks like in a meta way, are there themes in this episode? Uh, and it's interesting that we talked about like the difference between the US and, and the EU, uh, you know, great, all these different things. And we're talking about these different stages of companies and how like how people manage that. And the, and the and, and that and so like there's a little bit of me that's wondering um what as someone as someone like yourself who's investing across the gamut in america and in the eu like how are these how are these just like going differently you know like are there are the things that you learn from u.s companies because everything's announced that you can then translate to eu companies it feels like this kind of like you get the best of both worlds you get to see like like um Oh, there's this great story of per- I think it's paragliding where uh, paragliders love new people getting into this. I don't know if you know anything about paragliding, but for people that, who don't know, so p- paragliders love new people getting into the field because when they're paragliding together, uh, they'll let the new people go up ahead and they'll watch how they respond to the air eddies and stuff. And they're like, okay, I know there's a thing over there, I know there's a thing over there. So they let them all kind of like uh, be sacrificial lambs a little bit, and they can like navigate through. And so I'm wondering to, to what extent, like, you're able to, not like the Americans are the sacrificial lambs, but like, if, if like Americans are like a little bit more like go, if you're able to like use the differences between the two continent, continents, even though Europe is not actually a continent, um, to the benefit of like everyone, like what, what, like what Americans do really great, you can like translate that to Europeans. If what the Europeans do really great, you can translate to the Americans, like because everything's integrated into the nucleus that is NLC, the you can get all that, that that learning, I suppose, like that. It's not yeah. like there's a really big opportunity for um, development, just like in terms of like people like learning and from the different uh, cultures there. Yeah. 
To be honest, I, uh, so I've got some American colleagues. Our chairman is uh, an executive board of uh, of uh, Medtronic, <coughs> but he's Dutch, uh, Rob Ten Hoot. Um, so he's guiding me in that as well, le- learn more about Americans. But I don't know, personally, I don't know that much about uh, the differences. So I've got a couple of Americans yeah. working in the team. I've got a couple of people who worked and lived a long time in, uh, in the States, uh, but I'm not an expert uh, myself. Yeah. What I learned, so we have 80 people. We've got 24 nationalities. That's quite big, eh? a high number on, uh, on ADFT. They learn already a lot from the different cultures within NLC, being an American. But we also have people from the Middle East. We've got people from Asia, uh, across Europe, South America, Africa. Um, there's a lot to learn from a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was but, just, you know, but what I really but... envy, what I really envy about Americans is their. Uh, it's not so much the grid, but it's the uh, think big or go home. So when I tell the story about NLC in Europe, they say, "Oh man, you grew fast." And the American would say, "Oh, you did a great job. What do you need to go to, to go faster?" I love that question. <laughs> Instead of, oh, yeah. you did it great. No, how can you go faster? And why are you not 10 times as big? Let's go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think the, the problem. But, you I know, love the, it. The, yeah. yeah. But the problem there is uh, like, there's a little bit of like a lack of uh, celebration for the stages. You know, like when you succeed somewhere, it's like, all right, well, now what are you going to do? Like, even, even I, I'm guilty of that too, where if someone's successful, it's like, okay, what's the next thing they're going to work on? Like you I'm a little mean that, in that. Please. Yeah, I would just be like, like there's, like there's, it's sometimes it's hard. Like I can like list a number of examples, even historically, where like people, um, they they'll reach a mile marker, and they won't know, like they'll they'll know they reached it, but they won't feel anything, and they'll be looking to do the next thing, like working on. They'll just keep going. They won't yeah. like relax. Yeah, it's weird. I'm a little bit surprised because uh, what I like. And what's different, than, in particular, with North and Western Europe, what I have the feeling when I talk to Americans, they always say, oh, that's great, that's fantastic, you did a great job, right, to give a compliment. Wow, cool, let's go. Yes, and, uh, they do this. And then the next question is, let's continue. How can we build it faster and grower, uh, sorry, how, uh, bigger? Yeah. Uh, well, I think the Euro- European will say, well, that's amazing. Why? How did you do it? Oh, cool, nice, yeah, yeah. And then it stops, right? It's uh, mm. just an anecdote about uh, uh, something else. Is it's not business; it's sports. So my brother emigrated to Denmark uh, as a cattle farmer, and uh, my niece, his daughter, is very good in running. She's now preparing to uh, to go to the Olympics. So she's really good. She's a Danish national record holder of the five uh, game. The year proud, uh, proud But she's good. So where did she study? In the United States. Because the United States said, we need talents and uh, all the talent, if you put a lot of talents together, it will make our athletes better as well. So she studied, uh, she did a bachelor's and two masters in the States. It's all paid for. Uh, that's uh, fantastic. 
And I ask her the same question as you just asked me, and she is she has more experience. And uh, and her comparison between Denmark in this case, but I think Denmark and Netherlands don't differ that much, is exactly the same as I uh, said. So, are you training for the Olympics? Wow, that's great, fantastic. Do you need help? And uh, superb. And well, in Denmark, they will say, ah. That's difficult. Are you sure? You know, it's uh, there's more to strive for perfection. No, perfe yeah. no perfection, but progress. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the I think they both can be true in what I'm saying. The I think people like one response that people can give in America is like, "Great, you're doing great. You know, keep it up. What can we do to help with that?" But I yeah. think they're like internally for the people who are having that said to them. There's a there's sometimes so there's this like lack of appreciation of great like if you were say like if you were say oh you're doing a great job like, oh, oh okay really well i'm trying to do this like you want to help or you want to like do you help? like they wouldn't they don't like there's that like reaching those thresholds of like oh i just did a million a month great well let's try to do five you know like they just keep yeah. but there's a little bit of that like I got you know, you. like hey we don't even like we, they don't even like internally think hey i did a good job this is cool like there's like that too it's like so it's not that so you're, good is you're not good enough yeah, like there's like that, uh, the, like you're like the Twinkie on the end of a stick, like you're never gonna reach it type type of thing. Ah, Just keep going. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, in, in the flip side, yeah, yeah. So that's what I'm saying. Like, there's a flip side of like, uh, there's some weirdness there. I don't know if it's like collective mental illness or not. But um, yeah. when I looked at your companies, and I, don't, I wasn't able to look at all of eighty, but when I, I don't think I found this type. Um, I didn't see anything like involving like pharmacy or pharmacy technology when it came to health tech that you have invested in. If that's if that, if I'm wrong, you know, just tell me like, hey, in, uh, company X does pharmacy stuff. I was just wondering if there's any reason why uh, pharmacies have like so far not been on your radar as something to innovate in. Uh, you are right, but I'm not sure if you look today because today we did build the first biotech venture. It's uh, it's happened uh, today in. Uh, uh, Alzheimer, very experimental uh, Alzheimer uh, corner. But to answer your question, I started NLC uh, with very limited um, uh, resources, no team, no money. Uh, so we started with a low tech uh, solution and a digital solution because less uh, little capital was needed and you can make uh, faster progress, I thought. Yeah. Um, then we build up uh, a portfolio, we build up the team, we're building up traction, and then more and more academics ask us, can you help with uh, with this biotech or pharma as well? Um, we waited with it, we postponed it, and uh, last year we said, okay, let's, there, there is something. So we, we set up a team, there are now eight people, and uh, we expect this year to build six uh, new ventures in uh, space yeah and I, and, and I think it's wise uh, uh, discussion it's it's uh, it's a difficult market you need more know-how uh, you need a bigger network than uh, than some uh, medtech don't get me wrong yeah. because some medtech is very it's, it's it's deep tech as well just different markets yeah yeah, yeah just just a note of clarification I think the I meant like Pharmacy is like the people who give you drugs, not pharmaceuticals. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. So I'm like talking like, about uh, pharmaceuticals. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 So that yeah, uh, pharmaceuticals. 
Thank you for this language. I thought I was like, I think that we're having a language barrier. But, uh, but um, yeah, very good. Uh, yeah. yeah, no worries. So then, do you have interest in, because I think pharmacies themselves, like the distribution of medication to certain places, especially especially pharmacies, that's something I've been looking into a lot. I, you really want special... to talk about pharmacies? Yeah, like the pharmacies. Oh, themselves, like how, cool. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I was just wondering, like, I didn't see anything like that there, and it felt like some low-hanging fruit, because a lot of them are terrible. So then I just was wondering, you know, if there's any reason why, A, am I right, like, there aren't any pharmacies in terms of, you know, getting people the drugs um, there, and then, you know, B, if there are none, you know, why is that? Like, is there, is there like, a missed opportunity there? Is it, like, there's, a, like, logic first not in your thesis or stuff? Like, I'm just curious. I just wonder what happens here because today we uh, built the first biotech venture. Uh, from a new, we have some uh, built before, uh, but with our new model, we built the first today. We just announced it. Announced it. And um, just before I entered this call, I received a newsletter of the, the Green Health. Yeah? to make uh, the healthcare system uh, more sustainable. Uh, as, as you can imagine, it's, it's, it's a massive proportion of our society's healthcare, in particular of GDP, but also a number of workers. Uh, and it's also a big polluter. And we now announced today that we start a challenge in the pharmacies and the distribution with pharma, because there's a lot of uh, waste, uh, there's a lot of um, unused uh, medicine, um, which is uh, damaging the, uh, the world as well. Then answer your question. We first focus on IP-driven uh, solutions, uh, because it can be protected, it's relatively easy to attract the capital. But we are building up the competence to set up new businesses in the early stage in the healthcare industry. Mm -hmm. So we're having this ecosystem. We're now with 80 people. We've got a massive international network. So we get more and more requests. Can you do something with uh, green health, for instance? And yeah. uh, green health. Uh, can you do something with um, uh, uh, service providers in healthcare? And we are looking into those industries. Do we have a strategic edge? And can we really add something with our competence? Um, and that's the answer to your question. So we might yeah. enter that field in a couple of months or years. I don't know. But that's the reason why we're not there yet. Yeah. The pharmacies in America are just really obnoxious. I've been, why? Why is I have that? to like, uh, well, there's, it's, a, it's like, there's like benefit managers that control a lot of stuff. It's also just like they're. I I don't know why they choose to do the things the way they do them. For instance, I have to I have to like call every month for like a uh, especially medication I have to take or I die, and like I I think it's weird that I have to call anyone to order it when it's I'm just saying hey I want the medication ship it to me you know like that should just be like an online thing or like an app that can send it to me, but then the 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 time the amount of times a year that they'll screw it up and potentially I don't have medication on hand because of that. It's like pretty bad. Like it's not the insurance, which you'd think insurance is the problem with most things. It's not the doctor's office. It's literally just the pharmacy like misplacing the paperwork or not doing their thing. Right. And so I, I just, I've been looking into it more and more. What's the logic for their, their screw ups because when I'm talking to their managers and directors and I'm just, you know, like, Hey, why, why does this keep happening? The, the answers aren't very satisfying. So I've just been wondering, you know, who, who's working on these things so that, you know, uh, I can learn more. But 
Yeah, I was just wondering. You know, I understand you can only do so much with your time. So it is like a pick and choose. Like you have to like focus on what you already know with your team. They can do really great things at. So I understand like you, you don't have the team necessarily to go in these different areas yet. But now you're touching on an, uh, another subject and perhaps an answer to your question. Uh, so I envy the Americans for a lot of stuff. Uh, the culture, uh, and I mentioned already a couple of things, but I don't envy the Americans at all for the healthcare system. Yeah. And it's, uh, it makes me actually a little bit sad to think you guys are spending 20% of your GDP on a system which is rotten to the, it's terrible. I just heard a statistic that if you get three quarters of the personal bankruptcies come from after a person have, uh, has been declared, uh, has been diagnosed with cancer. Yep. I mean, that's, think about it. The most advanced society in the world spending 20% of the GDP, most of them, 50% of the global healthcare market is in America. Well, the F, it's insane. And now you're telling me eh, uh, the pharmacy industry is not, uh, uh, sorry, the pharmacies. Um, so, yeah, that, uh, if you're not, if you're underprivileged or if you're diagnosed with cancer, you are screwed up. And, uh, yeah. and I really don't, I don't understand why that situation has to be. We are spending 11%, 11% of the healthcare. Uh, it's for everybody. No one is excluded. Nobody in this country will go bankrupt. Nobody, not a single person will go bankrupt uh, based on uh, illness, cancer. Yeah. And that's not because we have better doctors. No, it's not. Well, we all, we all know American doctors are the best, so, but the uh, uh, just just joking. But the um, the people, the, the this the really sad, like something that's really really sad is like the idea that you can do everything right in your life, and you get some, you get cancer, get some type of illness, and your whole life savings is wiped out. Everything that you, like you'll have to like give up your house, you have to give up everything, and um, it's really unfair, and it's really inappropriate. And then on top of that, you have pharmacies. So like, especially ph like there's like pharmacies for like. I don't know, like really strong ibuprofen, like over, like that you like go to the store or whatever for. And there's like specialty pharmacies that handle like the cancer drugs themselves. Yeah. And they're like, uh, most people describe it as having like a part time job, just making sure they can get their drugs on time because the, the pharmacy, the specialty pharmacies can be quite shitty. And, uh, I can tell you from personal experience, it's, it's terrible. So I, I just, anyone listening who knows anything, let, let me know because, uh, you know, whenever I see the same problem like three times, like something starts itching in the back of my head. And so like, I've just been seeing a lot of people talk about, I'm on like all the forums and people are talking about like, oh, the pharmacy, like losing their information or whatever. And then like the doctor has to resubmit it to insurance. So the insurance has to, you know, send it all the way over there. Uh, like one, one day this last month and that we'll, we'll like move on. Cause I don't know to the extent people want to hear my thoughts on things, but the, um, the, I took like a full day off just to, like, like be on conference calls with the insurance, my doctor's office and the pharmacy like for like eight hours straight, like talking to different ones, resulting in like a collective uh, conferencing call just to get the pharmacy to admit it was their fault so they could fix it. And if and I didn't do that, yeah, it would I would not have gotten anything resolved for like three to six like months potentially. But and, so and that happens to everyone. But then no one's just like tenacious as me. Uh, like 
you know, I'm kind of like, so where's the money like going? If, if you spend double the amount of money compared to a healthcare system, which is better organized than America, spend, where's the money going? Probably, I think the, like, band-aids, for instance, if I buy band-aids off the, off the counter, it's probably like five bucks. They just, when you're getting from the hospital, it's like 800 when you're, like, billed for it. I think they're just, like, up taking it in that way. Uh, because I think it started in like the, I read a book on this, but the, I think it started in the, in the thirties when we were fighting your guys' war, uh, World War II. I'm just joking. Uh, but the, well, thank you. <laughs> yes. We, we came for you guys. Well, uh, for Holland in particular, but the, uh, we know, we the, remember. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I was, I was on a farm and apparently, yeah, you, you guys like really, really appreciate that. But, uh, the, the, we, they, they, they locked pay. So then they didn't have. Like they can say like, hey, I'll pay you like five dollars more, come work for me. So they found benefits. They like, oh, I'll give you like, I'll work out a deal with your doctor so that you can have like whatever. And that was insurance. And they originally got that idea from like you know Germany with Bismarck and stuff. But um, when when the war ended, they didn't want to give up the the uh, insurance like in that way, that relationship to workers. And then people tried coming in here and then making more of a national healthcare thing. But that healthcare back then was like a nickel, so they didn't think it was important. And then the doctors didn't want to like, like I think it was the doctors stopped it. And then when people started like, when the insurance industry started raising the prices, when the doctors said, "Well, I'm going to raise my price," and then the the hospitals were like, "Well, if you guys are going to do it, then I'm going to do it." Then it's just like everyone just kind of like running up the circle to like raise the prices. So like, it's not like value based prices for things. I think, but then they don't need to. But then there's a political decision to be made, and why do the why don't they make a decision? We stop it here because they have to look after the people and say it's ob- it's obviously it's nonsense what's happening here. We should be ashamed, uh, and now we stop it. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's, uh, but then it's politics again. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Anyone who has uh, you know options on that, you know, let us know. And you know, pharmacies <laughs> sounds like maybe you guys will go into it. We'll just segue off of that. Um, but what when it comes to leadership, I was I'm very curious, like how people can run a team. And, you know, instill the leadership principles that they actually want in people, right? Like you, you want people to kind of like break their ideas in their head, like what could be, uh, what should be, and then just kind of like push ahead and do like, just try, like try things out. But there is like, there are things you have to do as a leader to encourage that or to allow that to happen. Cause there's, there's leaders who I know, I, I literally talked to a guy yesterday who's, who says all the things that we talk about, but I asked him like two extra follow questions. I know he like treats his, his staff like crap. Uh, and like they actually probably want to leave them very quickly. So then I'm I'm curious, like how do you embolden and encourage and get the best from your team when you're working? I mean, like especially when the the if you do a bad job, like the costs are really quite large because then people aren't being helped. So then how, how do you what do you do as a leader to get people to act how you want, like with that boldness that you want to see in them, with that 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 trust, that honesty, that uh, desire to really move the needle needle as fast as possible? Um, yeah. Like how do you think about that? Well, first of all, it's the most difficult thing to realize, of course, and particularly if you're growing. If you're growing uh, like we did in two years from 30 to 80 people, how do you maintain that culture? <clears throat> and thanks for the advice of uh, having some tea or water. <laughs> I need it. So my philosophy is first you start with uh, the end goal. What, what do we try to achieve here? And we try to achieve to bring science 
to life, science, uh, technology to the patient to improve the healthcare system. That's the impact. We are all on the impact mission. And we do it for profits. And we are not a uh, not-for-profit because we believe the best way to do this is make use of the capitalist system. Right? Are we on the same page? And we're not playing uh, game A, B, or C. We are playing this game. Um, then we... <laughs> Uh, what is needed for that, uh, and we define the uh, cultural um, constraints together, uh, and we define it together, and that's to, what we call to do. We do it together. You always have to be very open. You have to be decisive. And you have to be optimistic, and that's where we give each other feedback as well. So, this, if you're not sharing information, it's a sin in our company. It's really mm. sin because if you no, let's do it one by one. We have to do it together. None of us is as good as all of us. You have to be open. You have to share information. It's none of us will keep us in his head to keep information behind. Because uh, in innovation, you cannot do because you have to pivot. You have to change. You have to, uh, you have to do it fast. Um, then say farewell of people who don't fit in that uh, culture. That's fine. Yeah, because... Uh, not everybody can live with uh, the impact drive and we need to do. And then create a very safe space. Um, and I think we uh, we manage it reasonably well. Mm -hmm. And there's one other thing, just to add to that. Although I love to read the biographies of successful American entrepreneurs, uh, I don't believe in heroeship. Uh, so I'm not better. Uh, actually, I once read a book, probably by an American, who said, "You are a successful entrepreneur if you are the, if you realize at the Christmas dinner that you are the dumbest person in the room." Mm -hmm. uh, and I succeeded in I think I've got extremely talented people, so I delegate it. Uh, I give them ownership, and uh, and they will take it uh, because they feel safe. Yeah. They're just one of the uh, just a couple of uh, touch points uh, how I try to lead and also yeah, that, leading, uh, leading uh, from behind instead of uh, saying we're going to do this or this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the I, the phraseology I've heard is that we call it like the Washington effect because Washington was like the dumb guy in the group because like, he had like Hamilton, Jefferson, all these people around them who were yeah. much smarter. It's like uh, it's like there are a lot of people who are just very insecure about smart people uh being around them, like oh, having anyone around that's smarter than them. It's really weird because like why would I want someone around who couldn't teach me something who wouldn't know yeah. more than me, right? Yeah. Like then I'm like then it's my job to teach them something. <laughs> you know, it's like I'd rather rather they be better than me so I can like go off and do something else. Uh, it's nicer that way. Let's go back to the European culture, to the Dutch culture. Do you do you know Johan Cruyff? Uh, no. It's the Wayne Kretschke, Kretschke of uh, of uh, soccer. So it's the Messi mm. of uh, of uh, of the of the nineteen seventies. So he was at Pele and Cruyff were the two biggest uh, players in the world, and he's Dutch. And he always said that uh, he, he always had fantastic uh, quotes, and that's why I uh, mentioned Wayne's because he has uh, his fantastic quotes as well. And he said, "If you are an uh, 
and uh, so we in, in the Netherlands, I just have to explain, we have the rating from zero to 10 on score. 10 is brilliant and one, zero, I don't get, one is uh, you're a failure, right? And mm -hmm. five is not good and six is just good enough. So, so Johan Cruyff, the big soccer player legend, he said uh, a seven, if you have a seven, a person you have seven, he will always collect six around him so he can be the boss. But the eight wants to collect a nine or a 10 around him so he can become better. And I really like that quote. So uh, I'm not a 10, I'm I'm not a nine, I'm in a seven and a half or an eight. And, uh, and I love to be inspired by uh, smarter colleagues. How do you, um, so when I'm hiring people, Sometimes it's difficult to ascertain like how many things they they believe versus they don't believe, like because there are certain things that like everybody knows to say because like it's the nice things to say. So when you are looking for people um, who are like eights essentially, when you're looking for a CEO or whatever, are there are there ways that you assess them to determine they're actually you know eights versus like maybe a little six or a four hiding, pretending to be an eight so they can have the opportunity. To be honest, I'm not the best person uh, in mm. that. Uh, if I have a senior hire, I will have my interview. My most important part of the interview is at the coffee machine, the chit chat, uh, before and after the real interview, so to say. We're, I've got great uh, headhunters working for us, and they are trained in it, and uh, they've got all the instruments and the tools. Mm. Also the tools, so we do online assessment, etc., and they know the questions. But yeah, I think yeah. this is a great example. I've, I've got much better people working for me than uh, than I can do it myself. Hmm. And then, uh, what what goals do you have for the next like five ten years for the organization? Are there are there things you're driving for right now? So our investment thesis is uh, you have to do the pre-seed at scale. Yeah. Uh -huh. For the reason I gave you, better information position, so hence you can make better decisions and better partners. And uh, so we want to grow into a global platform um, and make better risk assessments uh, and uh, increase the chances of, uh, of uh, success. So we are now active in 12 countries in Europe. Uh, our fastest growing geography is the United States. So we entered it and uh, there's a massive uh, growth opportunity. So we will open an office uh, later this year uh, in, the, in the States. And we are now exploring routes uh, into the global south. Uh, and the reason for that is that the impact there is massive. What's, what's yeah. the global south? Sorry, just a quick interruption. What's the global south? So the Global South is, uh, uh, so the first part is uh, Middle East and then go down, Africa, and Africa is oh, okay. served. Fastest growing population in the world is massive. Uh, so business-wise, as I said, 50% of the global health market is the United States. It will be very low percentage in, the, uh, in, uh, in Africa, but the impact you can realize is, uh, is uh, massive. Mm. Uh, and then of course goes go uh, to Asia. Yeah. yeah, I think I read in one of your interviews that you're trying to get into China too, but that the there are like political concerns with ownership with China in terms of IP, but there's still like a good market. 
to go into. But so you, I think I read that you were you're exploring China essentially. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I've been a couple of times, and then got a little bit stuck due to COVID, and they they mm. were very uh, constrained, right? Yeah. Uh, and then we focus more on on other geographies, but China is very interesting. It is uh, the healthcare market is um, it obviously has a huge population. It has a huge, 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 huge problem with uh, aging. Uh, they've got a fantastic entrepreneurial drive as well, uh, and still forty percent of global patents come from Europe. Um, so yeah. China, but yeah. China now is not a top priority. Uh, yeah, but we don't scare away to do business in China. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, then uh, I have some like rapid fire questions. I'd love to uh, get your you know your thoughts are on. And so the idea is like just they're like A or B essentially for the most part. But uh, if you if you don't have an answer, you can just hit pass because that's like more fun than you like you know responding to an uninteresting question. But all right, so. Uh, coffee or tea? Tea. Okay. Uh, milk or sugar? Milk. Okay. Uh, what book is on your bedside table right now? Uh, which book is a good question? I just started it the other night. Um, It's by the former CMO of Nike. Shoe dog? Shoe dogs? No, I love shoe dogs. I love that. Uh, no, it's not the CMO, the chief marketing officer. Emotion marketing, I think. Emotion mm. marketing. Yeah. yeah. CMO of uh, Nike. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, if you were to use one word to describe your leadership style, what would it be? My relations that one word. Open. Yeah, that sounds right from what I've heard so far. And then if if I'm if someone's visiting the Netherlands, what is a city you recommend people check out? Amsterdam. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's easy. And then uh, th those are the end of my rapid questions. So I just want to uh, thank you, BA, for taking the time to be on the show today. Uh, everyone, listen in. Uh, you know, put in the comment section what you learned. And if you have any suggestions for either of us, but BA, thanks so much for being on the show today. Cool. Uh, for my side, no question. I really appreciate it and uh, really enjoyed uh, talking to you.